Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. But how can we not look at our retirement accounts at a time like this? The lead starts right now. Record highs for housing and gas, and now Wall Street diving into historic territory. How worried should Americans be, as economists warn of a possible recession? And a backup plan in the works. The U.S. secures its first batch of baby formula from Europe, but it's not just parents of young infants desperate to get their hands on shipments. And detained in Russia for nearly three years, unfairly, unjustly, including, as punishment, in a psych ward full of criminals. So I was too too worried about, you know, who was in the cell with me to actually sleep. Um, you thought they might kill you? Yeah, I thought that was a possibility. More from my exclusive interview with Trevor Reed, the U.S. Marine veteran who is finally, thankfully, home. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with our money lead and renewed fears of an economic recession as the markets closed moments ago. The Dow finishing flat after a day mostly in the red. But what's sounding alarm bells now is that this is the eighth straight week of losses for the Dow. That's the longest weekly losing streak since 1923. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ also taking hits, fueled by investors who are getting increasingly spooked about how high inflation is messing with the U.S. economy. CNN's Matt Egan is live in New York for us. Matt, viewers are likely to see the words bull and bear market tossed around a lot. What does all of this mean in terms of our money, our savings? Well, Jake, the fear factor on Wall Street remains very high. The S&P 500 nearly closed in a bear market today. It was only a late-day rally that lifted it out of that territory. A bear market is a big deal because it means a 20% decline from previous highs, and bear markets often coincide with recessions, although not always. There are false alarms along the way. But for what it really means for our money, it means that our nest eggs, after two years, our nest eggs are getting smaller again. 401k plans, college savings plans, investment portfolios, all of them taking a hit, and that creates real anxiety for families. It also means that the level of concern about a recession on Wall Street, Jake, is getting higher. What are you hearing from economists about a possible recession? Well, it's really important to remember there are a lot of positives in the economy right now. I mean, consumers are spending money. Companies have a lot of cash on their balance sheets. The unemployment rate is almost back to pre-crisis levels. Payrolls are almost back to pre-COVID levels. But it's all about inflation, right? The fear is that the Federal Reserve was late to raising interest rates, and now they have to catch up to inflation by raising interest rates so rapidly that it could accidentally tip the economy into a recession. But I think it's important to remember that the real concern is not necessarily about an imminent recession. I mean, economists that I talk to, they're concerned about a recession perhaps in the second half of next year, maybe in 2024. So it kind of raises the question, do investors know something that economists don't? Maybe. Or are investors overreacting to a recession that might be still a year or two or more away? We'll see. 
Jake? Matt Egan, thanks so much. Joining us now live to discuss is global business columnist and associate editor for the Financial Times, Rana Faruhar. Rana, today the S&P 500 slipped more than 20% from its record high. It's considered the most accurate measure of the nation's stock performance. Based on what we know, how much worse do you think this could get? It's possible that it could get a fair bit worse. It kind of depends on what your inflation story is. I mean, it really is all about inflation and the fact that the Fed needs to hike rates in order to get that under control. Both Jay Powell, chair of the Fed, and, and President Biden have made it clear that that is job number one. Um, the question is, when do they stop, right? Do you stop and wipe out the gains the last two years because there's been a lot of inflation during the pandemic? Do you stop when you wipe out some of the easy money that we saw following the financial crisis uh, and you take the market down lower? Or do you keep going? I mean, you know, we've had, frankly, four decades of very low uh, rates and a lot of money being put in the economy. And the piper is going to have to be paid now. Uh, rightfully so, I think. Are we headed for a recession? And what does that mean to average consumers' wallets? Yeah, so that's a trickier question. Um, no doubt that there's going to be market volatility and a correction, I think probably even a bigger correction than this one. But recession, mm, it depends. It depends on a lot of different factors. I think that we probably will see a slowdown probably in 2023. It might feel like that sooner. But you have to remember the U.S., as bad as things seem right now, we are still the, the sort of um, prettiest house on the ugly block. <laughs> Um, if you want to use a metaphor, Europe is in the middle of a war. Uh, China is still struggling to contain COVID and they're having a major slowdown of their own. So, you know, it's all relative. I think it's going to be interesting to see with companies like Walmart, Target saying times are tough. People are uh, not feeling great. Once inflation is under control, do you start to see companies like that pick back up? I think that'll be very telling. So the stock market's falling even as gas prices keep rising. Gas prices not directly tied to the stock market, of course, but they're not expected to get better anytime soon either, right? No, that's right. And, and that's really a supply and demand question. Some of it has to do with war in Ukraine. Some of it has to do with supply chain issues. As you say, it's, it's um, you know, the, the, the actual oil prices have been getting a little bit better, but if refineries don't have the capacity to churn out that oil and get it to where it's needed in, in the form of gas, then gas prices stay high. And this is always how it is when, when you have big dips and swings in commodities markets. It's, it's a tight, sensitive market, and we go through these periods um, where it just takes a while for gas prices to catch up to where oil already is. The rising cost of borrow money has hit a lot of Americans hard, particularly people who are house hunting. Take a look at this. A year ago, if you borrowed $300,000 at a 3% interest rate, your monthly payment on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage was $1,267 a month. Right now, same loan, now with a 5.25 interest rate, that payment jumps up nearly $400 a month, which adds up to nearly five grand a year. That's, that's remarkable, especially when you consider that home prices just Huge. hit a record high. So home, home buyers aren't getting nearly as much house for the dollar. Yeah, you know, the housing market is something I am watching super closely right now. There's two things going on. One is the fact that rates are going up. And as you point out, that makes things wildly more expensive. I mean, I have friends that say, oh, my gosh, we sit on sit on a rate for two weeks and we can't afford the house anymore. Um, so I think you're going to see some softening of prices in certain markets that reflect the fact that those borrowing costs are going up. 
On the other hand, America actually has a real supply and demand shortage in housing. We need to build more houses. We need to rezone communities. I mean, you know, I'm talking to companies that are 3D printing houses because we have such a crisis. So that may actually keep uh, prices in some very tight markets high, even though borrowing costs are also going up. All right, Rana Farrar, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Record housing prices are also widening a racial divide. Many black Americans who already faced past years of housing discrimination now often finding the buying process almost impossible to get in on. CNN's Gabe Cohen takes a look now on why it's becoming that much harder in a historically black area of South Phoenix, Arizona. Look at this. (laughs) This is beautiful. That's the joy of a mother touring her dream home in Phoenix. I love it. But for half a million dollars, Dana Burns can't afford it. $500,000? $500,000? I don't think so. I know not. With record prices and now rising mortgage rates, the typical monthly payment for a U.S. home is up 42% in a year. It's pricing out first-time buyers of all backgrounds, but black applicants face even steeper hurdles. Studies show they're less likely to come from wealth, more likely to carry debt, and they pay disproportionately high rent, making it more difficult to save for a down payment. They're denied home loans 84% more often than white buyers. That's a big barrier in hot housing markets like Phoenix, where investors with cash are buying up more homes than ever to flip or rent, even more so in this historically black part of South Phoenix. It's emotional because this is where I wanted to be. Nikosha Jones grew up here and spent eight months trying to buy her first home. But with just $6,000 for a down payment, she couldn't compete and quit searching. Everything was crushed at that moment. Unfortunately, the homeownership gap has actually widened. New data show less than 45% of black families own their home, compared to 74% of white families, a gap that's barely changed since the 1960s, when the Fair Housing Act outlawed housing discrimination. Owning property is how most families build wealth, and it's never been more valuable. When people aren't buying homes, it just makes it more harder for future generations to buy homes. Now, record rent costs may widen the wealth gap and displace more people. The market's definitely speeding up gentrification. What am I going to do? Lord, help me. Dana Burns just got this notice that her rent in South Phoenix is rising from $1,050 to nearly $1,500. Oh, my gosh. That's why she's looking to buy, though where she can is unclear. If I'm going to pay this amount of money, I'd rather have it to be my own place. Nikosha's rent is also up $400. That 6000 she set aside is gone after she lost her job for a few months. If only we can get back in the neighborhood, I said I would love that. The dream of moving home. Do you think you can? Feeling further and further away. Not really. Now, a huge hurdle here is that the U.S. is short at least a couple million homes. The Biden administration this week unveiled a new development plan, especially for low-income housing. But, Jake, it likely won't make much of an impact for at least a few years. And in the short term, people are going to keep getting priced out. All right, Gabe Cohen, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. For weeks now, we've heard survival stories from that steel plant in Mariupol, Ukraine. Now, new incredible images as soldiers get to show the world what life has been like inside. Plus... The emotional day in Buffalo, New York, at the first funeral for one of the 10 innocent lives lost in a supermarket massacre. Stay with us. 
Breaking news in our world lead, Russia claims its forces have, quote, completely liberated the besieged steel plant in Mariupol, Ukraine. The Russian Ministry of Defense claiming the last group of Ukrainian forces has surrendered after months of nonstop fighting, although CNN cannot independently confirm this. New video just posted online appears to show the remaining Ukrainian fighters walking out of the plant. CNN's Melissa Bell is live for us in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. And Melissa, we've seen evacuations at the steel plant all, all week. Could this really be the end of the battle for Azovstal? The, the big question for the families of those involved, but of course for the whole of Ukraine, such a symbol of Ukrainian resistance had Azovstal become. But as you say, those latest uh, images, that latest announcement from the Russian Ministry of Defense that we cannot independently verify does suggest that the last 531 Azovstal fighters have now been evacuated. The latest picture of Dmitry Kozatsky, a soldier with the Azov Regiment who helped the world to see the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol, posting, that's it. Thank you for the shelter, Azovstal. The place of my death and my life. A steady stream of its haggard and injured defenders has been leaving these last few days, Russian forces and their allies in the Donetsk militia surrounding the plant. Nationalists blocked at the plant are actively surrendering. So far, 1,908 people have laid down their arms. The injured taken to hospital. The evacuees, now prisoners of war in the self-declared Donetsk People's Republic. Some of their families finally beginning to hear news from their loved ones. So my husband wrote me two days ago, and the situation is really hard and horrible. Uh, And uh, my husband is uh, on the way from one hell to another hell. Russia's promised to treat the fighters according to international law, but has said nothing about any exchange of prisoners of war. According to Ukrainian officials, negotiations are difficult. After weeks of bombardment, the place that symbolized Ukraine's resistance seems at last to be quiet. Jake, we had over the course of the day uh, been trying to find out how many fighters were still inside, how many dead there were. We now know, according to that Russian statement, that they've all been removed. We simply don't know for the time being how many have been lost. But I think it's important to remember that one of the reasons Azovstal had become such a symbol was the resilience of the men inside. They'd had no more food, they'd had no more water, and still they were holding out. And I think that is a measure of the strategic importance of Mariupol. You need only look at a map of Ukraine and those territories taken by Russia tonight, where things stand, to understand why that resistance was key. An enormous swathe now of Ukraine from uh, the part of uh, Ukraine, Crimea, that had been annexed back in 2014, uh, all the way to Donbass, now in the hands of Russia, and a part of the country, essentially, that Russia can claim as its own, Jake. Melissa, the Russian soldier on trial right now in Ukraine for killing an unarmed Ukrainian civilian, he was back in court in Kyiv for a third day. What's happening in that war crimes case? Well, we await the verdict now on Monday, but it's been an extraordinary week, Jake, because we've heard uh, the widow of the man that he's now admitted to having killed in the first few days of the war confront him. Lots of emotion in that courthouse, but also a much clearer picture for the first time, Jake, from the mouths of the foot soldiers who were involved in Russia's invasion, the chaos of those first few days. We didn't just hear from 21-year-old Vadim Shishimarin, who was on trial. We heard from another prisoner of war who was traveling with him in that 
car that day. They tried to get away from their tank column as it entered Ukraine after it hit a mine in a stolen car. An order had been given to kill a civilian that they feared might report them. Vadim Shishimarin resisted, was ordered to kill him nonetheless. And very poignantly, he told his widow this week that he was sorry, that he sought forgiveness, that he'd been obeying commands. And it really spoke to the sort of chaos and fear that these very young men both of them, 21 years old, must have faced. They simply didn't know what they were doing there or why. Still, the widow wanting him to spend the rest of his life in jail, saying that the only alternative she could see was that he might be handed over for some of those prisoners of war, some of those Azovstal fighters now in Russian hands. We'll find out on Monday whether or not 21-year-old Vadim Shishimarin will or will not spend the rest of his life in jail. Jake. All right, Melissa Bell in Kiev, Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, the baby formula shortage here in the U.S. It's not just parents of young infants impacted by the crisis. My next guest says formula is liquid gold for her teenage son. Stay with us. In the national lead, the first funeral was held today for one of the 10 victims, all of them black, killed in the mass shooting allegedly motivated by racism in Buffalo, New York. 67-year-old Hayward Patterson, who was gunned down at a Topps grocery store nearly a week ago, was laid to rest at Lincoln Memorial United Methodist Church today. CNN's Brian Todd reports on the emotional goodbye and a community trying to heal. An outpouring of support at the first funeral in Buffalo in the wake of Saturday's racist supermarket shooting. One of the 10 victims, Hayward Patterson, a church deacon and jitney driver, was honored by friends, parishioners, and the community. When Patterson got shot, he was actually loading groceries into the back of a vehicle, helping somebody else. Another friend says the community is angry, but can you forgive this gunman? I have to. Some people would argue you don't have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a Christian. You have to. It's mandatory for us. The Buffalo suspect's racism was evident during a previous visit to the store, according to an employee who survived the shooting. He told me I look like I didn't belong there. Like, you know, I said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you look like you belong out in a suburb store. Then under his breath, I could hear him say, just another lover. And I just thought, you know, that's just rude. You're just rude. Another store employee who survived tells CNN she called 911 and the operator scolded her for whispering. I gave her the address and I said, please send help. There's a person in the store shooting. And she proceeded to say to me, what? I can't hear you. Why are you whispering? You don't have to whisper. They can't hear you. She dropped her phone and says she was disconnected. I just laid down flat on the floor and got against the counter and praying that he didn't see me. And during this whole time, it's just constant, just shooting. He won't stop. It just is constantly going. And as I hear him getting closer, I just press myself, like trying to get flat as I can on the ground and up against the counter, praying to God that he wouldn't see me. Now, in addition to the profound grief that this community is feeling, as you can see here with this mural, there is also the potential for economic fallout. Several people in this community told us that it took local leaders years to get this top store established in this neighborhood right here. And after it did, other businesses like local uh, banks and other businesses followed right after that. They're now worried 
that even after this top store reopens as promised, that the economic viability of this neighborhood could really take a nosedive. Jake? Brian Todd in Buffalo, New York, thanks so much. Turning to our health lead and the growing crisis for families as they hunt for infant formula to feed their children, the Biden administration says it has secured the first batch of baby formula from overseas as part of the newly launched Operation Fly Formula program. An administration official says that desperately needed batches due to leave Switzerland within days. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us now live. Elizabeth, how soon will parents get their hands on this formula coming from overseas? It might take a little bit. We are anticipating that this flight will be very soon within days, but of course it has to get to the U.S. It has to be distributed. 1.5 million bottles is a lot, but when you think about spreading it around to different parts of the United States, we're not necessarily going to see shelves really in any one place fill up quickly. Let's take a look bigger picture at what the government is trying to do to ease this infant formula shortage. First of all, the Biden administration has invoked the Defense Production Act and they're directing formula ingredients to go to formula manufacturers first rather than other products that might use the same ingredients. Also, as we mentioned, Nestle is transferring these 1.5 million bottles of formula from Europe to the United States. And FDA and Abbott have agreed on steps to reopen that Michigan plant. Now, other than these bottles flying in from Europe, hopefully in the next few days, you'll notice that the other ones, the other steps are going to take some time. That factory isn't reopening anytime very soon. It will take a while for them to restart back up. A lot of this is steps put in motion, but nothing that consumers will notice anytime quickly. Elizabeth, you've been talking with countless families trying to figure out how to feed their babies and children. Are, Are they coming up with any solutions? You know, unfortunate solutions probably isn't the best word to use for this, but they've come up with unfortunate workarounds. So we've been talking to families who are rationing formula for their children. So I want to introduce you, for example, to Claire Holland. She lives outside of New Orleans. She has a genetic disorder where she can't digest protein. So she is really dependent on this special formula that is made so that she can digest it. And her parents can't find it. And they have had to cut the amount they give her in half. Now, this is a a bright, wonderful sixth grader. She just graduated yesterday. She won the science prize. She's on the honor roll, but her parents are really worried about her long-term health. Let's take a listen to her mother, Shannon. So, so actually, sorry, we don't have her mother, Shannon, but her mother, Shannon, told me that they're very worried about what could possibly happen long term. We also talked to another family, the Stibers outside of Chicago, their son, who's 11 years old. He has also a medical condition that makes it difficult for him to um, to eat regular food. They feed him by a tube into his stomach. They're also having to ration the formula and give him less than what they uh, expected, what they usually give him. So this is very difficult times for families like these. Really rough. Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. Joining us live to discuss Claire Rowan. Her teenage son, Will, relies on formula for his entire diet because he has fatal food allergies. Thanks for joining us. You told The Washington Post in February that this formula is like, quote, liquid gold to families such as yours. How have the last few months been for you and your family trying to feed Will? Um, Certainly challenging. We have been very, very grateful for the support of our community and our families, but it is desperate times, most certainly, and hearing about those other families in similar circumstances to ours, that it's nerve wracking to not know every day when you're going to run out, if there's going to be an option to feed your child the next day.
I want to ask you about this batch of much-needed formula that the Biden administration is flying in from Switzerland. They're sending three kinds of hypoallergenic formulas. Will this shipment, theoretically, could this help, Will? It could. And I think that perhaps all parents who have medically fragile children are in the same circumstance, which until you try something new and are approved by your doctor to try something new, you don't know if it's going to work. You might have where your child, it doesn't sit well with them or there's a reaction, there's an allergic reaction. And so one of the types that I know was coming was something we got a prescription and were approved to try. But by the time I was able to get the prescription over to the medical supplier, they were out of it. So we have a lot of things we could have tried, but none of them were available anymore. So I'm optimistic that one of them might work. But at this point, we still don't know. The FDA commissioner said yesterday that families are going to start to see relief within days. He also said that on Monday, four days ago, have you seen any relief this week? No, I have not, honestly. And when you say, you know, this week or four days, in my mind, 90 days is what I've been looking at because this started back in February for us. And so 90 days is too long for any family to not know if they're going to be able to feed their children. The number of parents, the people who on the ground are sharing resources and helping each other has been the only way that we've gotten through this. This has not been a help that we've really received from anybody in an industry or the government. It has truly been just the work of families helping each other. So to me, four days sounds great, but who wants to go four days without eating? Is anybody in Congress not eating for 90 days? Because that's what we're asking of some of these children, potentially, if we don't come up with a better answer. Yeah, hardly. Um, As you know, you've been you've been having trouble finding formula since February. That's when just to bring our our readers up to our viewers up to speed. That's when certain products were recalled due to a contamination issue that sickened uh, at least four children. Two of them died. As you know, you've relied on uh, uh, at times on the kindness of strangers to get you through this. Who? Who's helping you? We are helping each other. There's a, Honestly, it all came about from a Facebook post I put out the morning that we realized we had tons of recalled formula in our home. And my post was shared so very many times that local folks started helping and driving to find what was still available. At that time, we weren't getting anything off the shelves, but it was more so somebody who might have had you know, 10 cans in their home and thinking, well, I can share a can or two. And thus it spread and spread. So then nationwide moms, we were connecting with each other primarily just through Facebook. And we were able to then connect moms to send cans to each other. We've been driving them all over. My husband and I shipped everything we could. We thought that was a stopgap measure in February. And then we rolled into March well, now there's nothing left to share. Everybody has used everything I ha- they've had. I actually heard someone the other day speak of now there's pregnant women who are buying what they can for fear of having infants born soon who will not be able to feed them. So people are panicked. Now we have the idea of hoarding. We have mothers who have been taken advantage of, people who've flown across the country with empty suitcases to get there and be ghosted and find that there was no formula to be had. So this is a problem that many of us have been managing and trying to support each other through um, for about three months now. And there's so much finger pointing going on in Washington right now at the FDA, well-deserved, at Abbott, which makes baby formula, well-deserved, the lack of competition in the market, which is obviously an issue. Who do you blame or do you not even care? You just need it solved. (sighs) 
I would like to say initially I didn't blame anyone and certainly pointing fingers and blame doesn't get anything done, but I am frustrated. I am disappointed that in a first world country, we cannot figure out how to feed our children, our infants and our medically fragile community members. Um, So I'm not sure I want to blame anybody at this point, but action will say a whole lot more to me than the continual talk. I would like to see some things where we have some, some miss or some, change up of the way this market is managed. Four companies should not have 90% of the market. When one of them goes down, it crashes. We cannot manage that way. We need the government to maybe regulate the way this industry is is managed. Um, Looking at, we have such high tariff rates on bringing formula in that we don't, as a country, even open our doors to a lot more of what we could be using to support our our families and our children. So I don't really want to worry that much about blame anymore, but I'd rather say, let's take some action and realize that this is not just a want in life. This is a need. This is a necessity for families. You're you're a kinder person than I am, Claire Rowan. (laughs) I hope that my son then realizes that the goal should always be look for the helpers, do what you can for others, be grateful for what you have, but hit the ground and get going. Let's get something done. Let's get let's get it together. Biden administration, FBA, Congress, everyone else. Claire Rowan, thank you so much. Our best to you and our best to Will. Vice President Kamala thank Harris so called Oklahoma's new abortion bill a threat, not just to women, but all Americans. Just how far will the legislation go as the U.S. gets closer to the post-Roe era? Stay with us. In the National League, Oklahoma is about to have one of the strictest abortion bans in the country. Republican Governor Kevin Stitt is expected to sign the legislation, which prohibits abortions from the moment of fertilization. It also allows private citizens to sue abortion providers who, quote, knowingly perform or induce an abortion. As CNN's Lucy Kafanov reports for us now, the new Oklahoma law comes as Republican-led states across the country have been introducing strict abortion measures in anticipation of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade next month. We believe life begins at conception, and we're going to protect life in Oklahoma. Republican Governor Kevin Stitt not mincing his words, making good on his promise to make Oklahoma the most anti-abortion state in the country. Oklahoma lawmakers passing a bill on Thursday that would ban abortions at fertilization, making it one of the nation's most far-reaching abortion prohibitions, adding to a growing number of Republican-leaning states advancing strict measures in anticipation of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. This bill does not preclude any other programs seeking to help women and children in difficult times. What this bill does is protect life. The bill sparked immediate pushback from state Democrats. People will die. Women will die because they cannot access a procedure that they need to save their own life, and it will be on our conscience. Vice President Kamala Harris calling it the latest in a series of blatant attacks on women by extremist legislators, while on Thursday offering a grim preview of a post-Roe America. It represents a threat not just to women, but to all Americans. At its core, this is about our future as a nation, about whether we live in a country where the government can interfere in personal decisions. Oklahoma's bill would ban abortions at any stage of pregnancy, unless it was a result of rape, sexual assault, or incest, but only if those crimes have been reported to law enforcement. While there are exceptions for medical emergencies, it effectively prohibits almost all abortions in the state. 
It relies on private citizens for enforcement, allowing them to sue any individual who knowingly engages in conduct that aids or abets the performance or inducement of an abortion, including paying for or reimbursing the costs of an abortion through insurance or otherwise. This law was designed to encourage people to bring frivolous and harassing lawsuits. It's um, basically all access pass to the courthouse to bring a lawsuit against somebody for something that you think may be taking place. The bill now heads to Governor Stitt's desk, who's promised to sign any legislation that limits abortion. Just last month, he signed a bill modeled after a Texas legislation that prohibits abortions as early as six weeks, before many women even know they're pregnant. The measure does allow for exceptions in medical emergencies. Other states can do things differently, but uh, we're going to stand for life in the state of Oklahoma. Here in rural Oklahoma, women are already severely limited in terms of their options of access to abortion. There are only four clinics in this entire state that offer abortion services. Two of them stopped providing abortions earlier this month. Once Governor Stitt signs this bill into law, this near total abortion ban, it goes into effect immediately. And that is when the other two clinics will cease providing abortions, leaving Oklahoma women with no options in the state. Jake. Lucy Kafanov in Oklahoma for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, just how much do student athletes get paid these days? The question after new rules and a very public spat between two high-profile college coaches. Plus, what a source is telling CNN about an incident involving two Secret Service employees and a night out at bars in South Korea before President Biden arrived. Stay with us. Our sports lead now. It's the 20th of May and feels like summer here in D.C. What better time to talk football? Really, actually, there is big news. College football's governing body just told a couple of high-profile coaches to, in effect, sit down and shut up because they've been talking smack about each other's programs, specifically whether teams are bending the rules to buy the latest players. Let's hand the ball now to CNN's Tom Foreman. Even on the field, the hits in college football don't come any harder. Legendary Alabama coach Nick Saban accusing other schools of recruiting amateur athletes with professional-level money. And m bought every player on their team, made a deal for name, image, and likeness. All right, we didn't buy one player. I mean, Jackson State paid a guy a million dollars last year. Nobody did anything about it. Jackson State coach Deion Sanders said, that's a lie. I don't even make a million. Texas A&M's Jimbo Fisher denied the claim, too, and then let Saban have it. We built him up to be the czar of football. Go dig into his past or anybody that's ever coached with him. You can find out anything you want to find out, what he does and how he does it. And it's despicable. At the center of the fight is a Supreme Court ruling less than a year ago, allowing student-athletes to make money by licensing their names, images, and likenesses. Some insiders say that decision was quickly embraced by alumni groups, boosters, and others who saw a way to build financial inducement packages to lure athletes. Those collectives are now believed to be funneling millions into the hunt for top players, according to Andrew Brandt, a specialist in sports law at Villanova. It became a way to induce players to come to campus in a way that was allowed, quote unquote, and no one's enforcing it. States aren't, the NCAA is not, the schools aren't. So it's the Wild West. He and other sports analysts note the change has upended recruiting strategies, especially for powerful schools that previously seemed to get anyone they wanted. Nick Saban's upset because kids uh, kids went to Texas A&M instead of Alabama. Some people think they're God. 
The Southeastern Football Conference has reprimanded both Fisher and Saban, and the Alabama coach says he's sorry for starting the whole mess. I should have never really singled anybody out. You know, that was a mistake, and I really apologize for that part of it. You'll notice Saban isn't backing down from the issue. We reached out to Saban and to Fisher in the NCAA to see if anybody has anything else to say about it. My bet, Jake, is that they are going to have something to say about it because we're three months away from the start of football, and this issue is only getting bigger, and people are lowering up out there, getting ready to fight further on this, and the question remains, what do you do? What do you do? These teams are multi-billion dollar interest in terms of college sports, and they want to get the best players, and no coach wants to lose out because they didn't play as hard as they could off the field. And yet, what's the result going to be? I don't know. Maybe more litigation? More penalty flags? We'll see. Well, Nick Saban's biggest fan, Caitlin Collins, is going to find you in your office to talk about that spot. I'll refer, her uh, to you. I'll refer her to you. I hope you're ready. <laughs> Arrested, detained, and put on trial. Coming up next, my one-on-one with U.S. Marine veteran Trevor Reed after being locked up in a Russian custody for almost three years. I was not going to compromise, you know, my morals um, and plead guilty to a crime that I didn't commit. The interview you're only going to see here on CNN. We have some big clips for you coming up. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, my exclusive interview with Marine veteran Trevor Reed. He's talking for the first time since being released after unjustly spending... 985 days in a Russian prison. We're going to talk about everything from the night he got in trouble to his new mission, securing the freedom of other Americans still being detained unjustly around the world. Plus, a warning about sextortion. A look at the growing threat online, not just to teenage girls, but to teenage boys as well, and the deadly consequences potentially. And leading this hour, Asia is the future. That's President Biden's message today. While visiting South Korea as part of a key diplomatic trip to the region, his visit could have serious economic and geopolitical impacts. CNN's MJ Lee is in Seoul, South Korea for us. That's where President Biden kicked off his trip by meeting with the South Korean president and touring a Samsung plant. You're very generous. Thank you very much. President Biden kicking off his inaugural trip to Asia as commander-in-chief. His first stop, South Korea, a critical economic and military ally for the United States. The alliance between the Republic of Korea and the United States of America is a linchpin of peace, stability and prosperity. Moments after landing here, the president meeting in person for the first time, his newly inaugurated South Korean counterpart, Yoon Seok-yeol. Welcome to Samsung. The two leaders touring a Samsung plant amid a global shortage of semiconductor chips exacerbated by the pandemic and worldwide supply chain issues. The COVID-19 pandemic exposed the fragility of just-in-time supply chains. That facility serving as a backdrop for Biden's broader message that robust U.S. alliances with its Asian allies is key to a thriving global economy and security. So much of the future of the world is going to be written here in the Indo-Pacific over the next several decades. We're standing at an inflection point in history where the decisions we make today will have far-reaching impacts on the world we leave to our children tomorrow. The five-day trip through South Korea, then next Japan, 
also aimed at trying to counter China's growing influence in the region. We think putting that on display over four days bilaterally with the ROK and Japan through the Quad, through the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, it will send a powerful message. We think that message will be heard everywhere. We think it will be heard in Beijing. But even in Asia, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine remaining top of mind for President Biden. Putin's brutal and unprovoked war in Ukraine has further spotlighted the need to secure our critical supply chains so that our economy, our economic and our national security are not dependent on countries that don't share our values. Also looming over his visit to Seoul, the threat of a missile or nuclear test by North Korea. <laughs> Top U.S. officials insisting that the Biden administration is prepared for all possible scenarios. We are preparing for all contingencies, including the possibility uh, that such a provocation would occur while we are in Korea or in Japan. Now, a bit of an incident here involving two U.S. Secret Service employees to tell you about that ended up getting sent home. What we're told is a group of U.S. Secret Service uh, employees went out to dinner this week and then they visited a number of bars. Then two of them returned back from their night out and one ended up getting into an altercation involving a cab driver and two uh, Korean nationals. Uh, now, there was a police response, we are told, though there were no arrests and there were no charges that were filed. But those two did end up getting sent home, and they are now on administrative leave. Though, Jake, it's important to note that these two were involved in physical security and the logistical prep uh, heading into the president's visit here. They were not a part of the president's uh, advanced detail team. Jake. All right, MJ Lee in Seoul, South Korea for us. Thanks so much. Central to Biden's talks with leaders over the weekend will be, of course, North Korea. As MJ mentioned, U.S. intelligence is keeping a close watch on North Korea amid fears that it could conduct an underground nuclear or ballistic missile test while President Biden is in Asia. CNN's Oren Lieberman is live for us now at the Pentagon. And Oren, why does the U.S. think North Korea might be preparing for a missile test now? The U.S. intelligence community and the military look at the satellite imagery of the known test sites very carefully. Right now, the focus is on a potential ICBM test, an intercontinental ballistic missile test. A U.S. official familiar with the latest information says that recent satellite imagery shows vehicles there that might be used to prep the fueling of a missile. And because you don't want an ICBM sitting there for an extended period of time with fuel on it, that's considered one of the final phases before you would carry out an ICBM test. And that's why the warning has gone from possible to probable and now perhaps imminent. And that's why the U.S. is looking at the possibility that Kim Jong-un might choose to fire off this uh, ICBM while President Joe Biden is either in Korea or in Japan, regardless in the region and there. They've also been looking at a different test site where the North Koreans may have been prepping an underground nuclear test. That doesn't seem as imminent. Of course, Jake, it is no less urgent. Orrin, does the Biden administration have a plan in place in case a missile test does happen? The administration insists that it's prepared for all contingencies, but it hasn't, in this case, tipped its hand and said, yes, absolutely, this is what we're going to do. But there's, it's no doubt that they take this very seriously. North Korea has fired off uh, quite a number of not only ballistic missiles, but claimed hypersonic missiles and cruise missiles since the start of the year. And in each one of these, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby says they advance their weapons program. What we need to make sure is that we are properly postured, that we have the right capabilities in the region to defend ourselves, to defend our interests, and defend our allies and partners. Five of our seven treaty alliances are in the Pacific region. 
Back in March, uh, the U.S., after uh, North Korea carried out some of these ICBM system tests, increased its surveillance over the Yellow Sea near North Korea. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan saying earlier this week a change in posture to defend U.S. interests and allies may also be on the table if the uh, North Koreans carry out another ICBM test. All right, Orrin Lieberman, uh, live for us from the Pentagon. Thank you so much. From North Korea to Ukraine, our other world lead, a Ukrainian village torched to the ground outside Kharkiv. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh was in this village just minutes after what may have been a serious Russian attack. Putin would choke the light and life out of here. We are driving into the smoke of an incendiary munitions attack, we're told here, against this civilian village. Homes, fields, even the air itself torched. Vera says she saw it falling from the sky and her neighbor hit. The incendiary munition, which burns hot through everything in its path, came after heavy normal shelling, which makes you question, like so much here, exactly why Russia needed to heat fire on top of heavy explosive. It hit just 10 minutes ago, this man says, pointing the way. Some left bewildered, others in the first moments of shock. (laughs) Valentina is very matter-of-fact as she describes what happened to Victor in her neighbour's house. She shows us the courtyard where a dead man lies, a large hole in his chest, an ear torn off. She points to the body just behind the tree and then says who he is. Victor had rushed to check on their neighbour's home. Russia occupied here for weeks, and as it retreats, these tiny corners of green are where it visits its anger. Up the road, towards Russia's last positions before the border, the shells land even closer. Natalia's husband died in shelling weeks ago, and her house is, like almost everything here, ruined. For the weeks when here was occupied, she lived across the street from an enormous Russian base. Our guides from Ukrainian Rapid Response Unit are cautious. Fighting is intensifying up the road and they know the Russians got comfortable here. One Mayak. Their base even needed this aircraft warning device up high to tell Russian jets it was friendly. This is their problem each time they move forward. Here they are in what was once a Russian position and look, look all around you. Impossible to know who's really in control of this area with a fight happening just on the other side of the hill. The smell of corpses among the pines. Under every footstep, the threat of mines 
everywhere you look, foxholes, ammunition boxes, clearly a significant Russian base here. They're calling it a little town, using this forest as cover, but clearly hit really hard. The tomb of the unknown Russian soldiers, this says. Ghoulish relics here, where it once buzzed with the brutish, clumsy task of besieging a city. Smouldering in the trees here, but swallowed in their tall silence. At this stage, it does at times feel like the narrative around this war is of some sort of stalemate or where gains by each side are incremental. But none of that, Jake, is stopping the level of destruction that we are still seeing that particular settlement, Sirkuni, and the villages after it further north. A matter of 20 minutes drive from where I'm standing and still as we approached it, this devastating cloud of smoke from the use of incendiary munitions. Just as I'm speaking now, a rumble of artillery behind us here. This is Ukraine's second largest city and despite the fact that it breathes easier now because the Russians have been pushed further back, the Russians pushed back again and the persistent use of heavy weaponry frankly means that people in those settlements which should just be peaceful country idols frankly are still not safe. Jake. Nick Payton Walsh in Ukraine, thank you so much for that important report. Coming up, more cases of monkeypox showing up around the world. What do you need to know about the virus? We'll tell you. Then, my exclusive interview with Trevor Reed and his family. What caused his mother and sister to fear they would never see him again? That's ahead. In our health lead now, the World Health Organization just announced there are now 80 confirmed cases of monkeypox and another 50 cases under investigation around the globe. The viral illness causes, among other things, horrible-looking lesions on the skin. Let's bring in Dr. Saju Matthew. He's a public health specialist. First of all, Dr. Matthew, tell us about monkeypox. Besides looking awful, what, what does it do to a person? Right. You know, just... We don't need another virus to ruin our lives, but here we are again. Monkeypox virus is endemic to parts of Africa. We think that it got over to Europe uh, from a human-to-human transfer or maybe an animal to a human and then a human-to-human. Now, what we need to worry about really with this is the fact that we have these cluster of cases, which is pretty strange. Uh, Smallpox is in the same family of monkeypox, so the good news is the vaccine against smallpox will also work against monkeypox. But the WHO had deemed this disease eradicated smallpox in 1980. So chances are, if you were born after 1980, you will not have protection against monkeypox. But what does it do other than the lesions? Well, the, 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 the biggest deal that you have to worry about with monkeypox is that it can be contagious. It can actually uh, spread to the body, the whole systemic circulation. Patients can die from this. The fatality rate is between zero and 10%. But unlike COVID, it's not as infectious. And the good news about monkeypox is you're mostly infectious only when you have those lesions that you talked about on the body. Monkeypox, as you noted, uh, historically has been mostly confined to Africa, but it is showing up in more and more uh, European countries, plus Canada and the United States. How worried should our viewers be about this spread? Well, I don't think we need to panic, but we absolutely need to be cautious. Again, the fact that we have these cluster of cases in Europe and in North America, that's still a bit strange. Uh, And also, I think what we need to just watch out for are these symptoms. You get a fever, headache, lymph nodes, and then 
about a few days later, Jake, you get these typical lesions that almost looks like uh, chicken pox or shingles. So it's going to be really important for us to share information globally. And I think we're in a much better position, given what we've gone through with the COVID pandemic, to be prepared for this possible larger cluster of breaks with uh, monkeypox. Dr. Sajou Matthew, thank you so much. Breaking news now. A federal judge has just ruled that Title 42 must stay in place, at least for now. The Trump-era border policy allowed authorities to quickly expel migrants at the southern border using the coronavirus pandemic as justification. The Biden administration was trying to lift it starting Monday, leading Democrats and Republicans to sound the alarm about a surge of migrants that would follow. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is live for us in Hidalgo, Texas, uh, right near the border. Priscilla, what's in the ruling? What happens next? Jake, just moments ago, that federal judge in Louisiana saying that the administration is blocked for now for ending Title 42. This is a ruling that stems from a case where more than 20 states had filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration's decision to end Title 42. What this means is that for now, the Biden administration will have to continue to implement Title 42 and expel migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border uh, because of the public health crisis. Now, uh, the administration may appeal this. The case will proceed from here. But for now, Jake, the Biden administration will not be able to end Title 42 as it planned to do on Monday. All right, Priscilla Alvarez, thank you so much. Appreciate the update. It is the first time he's talked since being freed from a Russian prison. What upset the retired Marine when he was released after 985 days in captivity? Part of my exclusive interview with Trevor Reed will air next. Stay with us. He spent almost three years in Russian custody, in jail, prison, a psych ward, a work camp, convicted for a crime with no evidence in a trial the U.S. government called laughable and a gross miscarriage of justice. Now, for the first time since being released, Trevor Reed is talking. I had the honor of sitting down with the former Marine and his family for a CNN exclusive. In August 2019, Trevor went to a party with his Russian girlfriend. He drank too much, and several hours later, he woke up in the lobby of a Russian police station. All seemed okay until a police officer heard him speaking English, and that police officer called Russian intelligence. And that's when Trevor Reed's nightmare really began. At the trial, which Trevor says was was a total sham, he was sentenced to nine years behind bars. I asked Trevor about the statement he delivered to the court. This isn't my last word whenever I was being, you know, sentenced. I said... I understand in this country that pleading guilty may lead to you having a shorter sentence, but I think it would be unethical and immoral to plead guilty to a crime that I truly did not commit. And if I'm going to be given a prison sentence, I would rather stay in prison an honest man than walk away tomorrow a liar and a coward. It's a remarkable thing to tell a Russian court. Yeah, and uh, and that's truly what I believe. Um, if I would have had to sit there for for ten years, for twenty years, uh, it doesn't matter how long or what what the punishment would be. I was not going to compromise, you know, my morals um, and plead guilty to a crime that I didn't commit. I think that's unethical and to me the the consequences of doing that 
didn't matter. During his 985 days in Russian captivity, a jail, prison, psych hospital, work camp, Trevor became fluent in Russian, eventually thinking and dreaming in Russian. He even has a slight Russian accent now. And while he was in prison, his family back in the U.S. was advocating for his release. When Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, Trevor's sister and mother panicked. They worried any chance of a diplomatic solution was dead. I knew he was going to raise hell for them. Um, I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but um, around the time that the war started in Ukraine, I, I got very used to the idea that I wasn't going to see him again. Really? You thought that things were just going to, it was just going to break down and there was just, because the only way he was going to get freed was with the Russian government agreeing to something. Yeah, and I thought that those communications would be over and that, like, my mom and I both started having horrible nightmares, night terrors, sleep paralysis. Like, I sincerely didn't think I was going to see him again. Oh, my God, that must have been horrible. And I didn't really want to bother her or tell her, but she called one day and said, Mom, I'm not sleeping and I said, oh, well, Taylor, neither am I. It's okay. You know, it's, I think it's to be expected. This is a really hard time. And then she said, no, but I'm really having horrible dreams. And I said, well, I am too. So, Fortunately, their worst fears did not come true. But for the families of Brittany Grinder and Paul Whelan, the nightmare is ongoing. Trevor talked about Paul and even knew about Paul's detainment before he headed to Moscow in 1999. I'm sorry, in, in 2019 to visit his girlfriend. Because of Paul Whelan's case, I almost did not travel to Russia. So this is gonna sound stupid because of what happened, but the only thing that, um, you know, I was like, oh, well, like I will go, was that I had already bought a ticket by the time that I found out about Paul Whelan's case. And I was like, I don't want to pay that 200 bucks to change my ticket. Um, but at that same time, I thought, okay, they've like clearly taken this Marine hostage. Um, there's absolutely no way that they're going to do that a second time. Like even just from that first time, you know, that's completely embarrassing. That's completely just demonizes the Russian government. And I thought like, there's no way that they will do that again. Because before Paul, you know, Russia was not like going and taking Americans hostage. That wasn't like something that the Russians did. That's something that, that North Korea does. So a lot of people have been following your case for your almost three years of detention. Um, they want to know what your message is. What is your message? The first one is that Americans should be aware that this is happening to Americans all over the world, not only in Russia, but, you know, especially with regard to Russia, you know, I would like Americans to know that I'm not the only American political prisoner there. So Paul Whelan has been there for, you know, three and a half years. He's been in there longer than I have. Um, he was in an FSB prison there for a year, which is brutal. We need to do absolutely everything we can as Americans to advocate for, for those Americans who are, you know, being held illegally overseas and do every single thing we can possible to get them out. We have to do that. And, and I think that that's 
a duty of all Americans to do that. Um, you know, I, when they told me that I was leaving, I thought that Paul, you know, was leaving with me. And uh, when I found out that they left him here, that was tough. You didn't want to go without him? You didn't have a choice, Trevor. Sorry. You didn't have a choice. There's nothing you could do. Yeah, I realize that, but uh, the fact is that the United States should have got him out, and we have to get him out at, at any cost. You can see more of my exclusive sit-down this Sunday night in a CNN special report, Finally Home, the Trevor Reed interview. I'll also be joined by Paul Whelan, sister and brother, discussing the latest in their push to free Paul. It's all Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Coming up in just four days, Donald Trump's sway over Republican voters will be put to the test once again. What might this mean for November's elections? That's next. And we're back with our politics lead. It is a blitz across Georgia with just four days left until the state's crucial primaries. And despite a dismal new poll showing him trailing incumbent Governor Brian Kemp by more than 30 points, former Senator David Perdue hit the campaign trail this afternoon for a rally with former Republican vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin. Let's discuss. Uh, Kristen Soltis-Anderson, let me start with you. Despite being on the trail today, it seems Perdue might have seen the writing on the wall. His campaign is spending... (laughs) No money on TV ads uh, for the entire last week of the race. Uh, You're a pollster. What went wrong with the Purdue challenge of the incumbent Republican? Donald Trump is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. And Brian Kemp, despite the fact that Donald Trump has attacked him repeatedly, is someone that Georgia Republicans kind of like. They like how he has performed as governor. They think that he is the one who can prevent Stacey Abrams from winning in a general election. And those are really powerful things. So in a contest where there are lots of people, people aren't very well known, that's where Donald Trump can come in and he can, you know, really make some waves. But in a race where voters know and like the incumbent, it's a lot harder for Donald Trump to unseat someone. He also used the power of incumbency. I was talking to a political consultant in Georgia today who reminded me that literally this week, married couples in Georgia got $500 in their bank accounts Mm. As a tax refund. Oh, what a coincidence, that timing. How did wow. that, how did that occur? So, in a, you know, in addition to that, there's... You Just know, Republican tax- ones or all? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, he, he signed legislation to ban, you know, CRT. You know, he's done a lot of stuff that... The scourge of CRT. Right. Yeah, that race conservatives yeah. like. Right. That so, conservatives like. So, um, Nia Malika, let me ask you, because Kemp is, he's, he's pretty much just ignoring Purdue and talking about Stacey Abrams, who will likely be his Democratic opponent. This will be a rematch from their election uh, four years ago. What does that rematch look like? Well, listen, it was a close, close race in 2018 and a year that was really good for uh, Democrats. And you saw Stacey Abrams perform better there than you'd really seen any Democrat in in years past. She was able to bring out African-American voters, uh, Asian voters, uh, Latino voters as well, and did fairly well with white voters uh, as well. 
Hard to see in this year that is a Republican-friendly year because of all of the data we see about gas prices, uh, shortages around everything in the country. Uh, it's hard to see her sort of matching that performance this go-round, but she's certainly going to give it a go. Um, she will probably be able to bring out a similar kind of demographic, but again, Kemp is the incumbent. It's harder uh, this go-round for her, I think, to, to really uh, be able to overtake the well, power a national of the Republican won't get caught napping on this one. I think back in 2018, (laughs) there was a sense that, look, they knew there was a chance, but that Georgia had been a red state for so long. Now it is abundantly clear Georgia is a swing state. Right, but she's also been working the last four years, right? So I I, I agree with you, like the headwinds are not necessarily in her favor. She's been putting the time on the ground and building up that network, so I think it's going to be a lot closer than people think. We'll we'll see. Uh, Let's turn uh, to Pennsylvania because election officials are still counting the votes there as we do in Pennsylvania. And every single one of the ballots is crucial right now because of how close this race is, the Republican Senate primary, uh, where Dr. Mehmet Oz uh, is just over 0.1 percentage point uh, over Dave uh, McCormick. It's only about 1,000. Last time I looked, it was 1,008 votes. Um, Both camp, or I'm sorry, 1,080 votes. Both campaigns are preparing for a recount. Politico puts it like this, quote, at this juncture, neither camp is signaling that they'll throw in the towel. Instead, Pennsylvania Republicans are predicting trench warfare that could drag out for weeks and be fought in the media as well as potentially in the courts in the state's closely watched primaries. Um, <laughs> it is interesting to see uh, Republicans believing that every vote counts. Every vote in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and if including Mehmet, mail-in votes. Well, and if Mehmet Oz comes out on top, Donald Trump's candidate, it'll be free and fair election. Mm-hmm. But if he were to lose, you'll hear from you'll hear from Donald Trump, who, by the way, as you all know, asked and said, "Oz, why don't you just declare victory?" Because you're ahead and you won. And that's not the way we conduct elections in this country. We ought to have a better way of counting votes. We ought to be able to do it quicker in the great Commonwealth. um, And figure out the legislature ought to figure out a way to do that quicker because it's kind of silly. But every vote counts. Yeah, no, every vote does count. I have to say, to Dr. Oz's credit, he has not yes, taken right. Donald Trump's advice and just declared victory. It is, it is weird because when, you know, we, I, we anchored right here or wherever I was, uh, and I left at about midnight, and McCormick was up. Mm-hmm. But then all between midnight and one, more votes came in, and then Oz was slightly up. And I guess McCormick could have declared victory under the Donald Trump rules. Right. Uh, <laughs> but I think they're both doing the right thing. It's just keeping their powder dry, see what happens. It's going to be a recount. It's going to be a fight. This is great for uh, the Democrats to let the Republicans go fight it out, and then they can just talk about what they are going to do for the state of Pennsylvania. They have to change that law where they can't even start processing mail-in votes until the night of the election. Well, that's That's the Republican legislature that's held that up. Yeah. Yeah. Well... I mean, now, now it's biting them. Such a mess. I think if you're a Republican uh, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, you are really regretting the fact that uh, Donald Trump got so involved in this race. It's ended up being so messy. Uh, and, and either of these guys, whoever comes out on top, you know, they've wasted all this time going at each other, spending millions of dollars, tearing each other down. Uh, so it's going to be hard, I think, going forward for either of these folks. They're obviously facing Fetterman. Democrats feel better, very good about him as a candidate and the prospect of flipping this seat. Is there any chance that Dave McCormick going through, in a smaller way, what what Joe Biden went through in the sense that people are Republicans, Donald Trump, are now accusing him of cheating and saying that Oz should just declare victory and blah, blah, blah. Is there any chance that is going to demonstrate to Republicans who believe the big lie, oh, maybe this was 
crap. Maybe this was nonsense. <laughs> Possibly. I mean, again, this is not a... You can't fit this into that framework of, oh, this is the other side politically and they have all these ideological goals and therefore, because they want to achieve those goals, they're willing to do X, Y, and Z voter fraud. This is two candidates who are both trying to frame themselves as very ideologically aligned. And so I do think that it takes some of the air out of the balloon of this idea that, well, if you're losing an election and it's really close, that there must be funny games that are motivated by ideology. In a primary, you just don't have that. But one of these people was endorsed by Donald Trump. And that sort of adds, you know, something to this to this fight. Although, to be honest, it could have been either one. I mean, it, like they're trying to out Trump each other. Yeah, all of them. right. All of them. And that's why, you know, uh, Kathy Barnett sort of got in there and took away so many votes uh, from both of them. But but I think that, you know, Donald Trump is out there now. He believes he has more writing on this than anybody else. Pennsylvania swing state. This is this is important to him in every single way. Yeah, I and, will say this. Whoever wins between McCormick and Oz the absentee ballots, the vote-by-mail ballots, right. will have made the difference and allowed them to win, which is a demonstration of why valid vote-by-mail <laughs> is important and should be counted, mm-hmm. whoever right. it's for, yeah, yeah. Biden or you, Trump or McCormick. You're exactly right. Yeah. And, yeah. and Republicans have done themselves a, a disservice by really uh, talking down absentee ballots and acting like there's you know, abundant fraud with these kind of ballots. Well, you remember, you wrote a book about it, the election mm-hmm. of 2000. Right. Absentee military mm-hmm. ballots. Right. That was a big difference in that election. Right, and they came in, that had to do with whether they came in after the election. That's right, but it was absentee. All right, thank you so much. Great panel, really uh, appreciate it. Thanks for all being there. Also in our politics lead, prosecutors put Hillary Clinton's former campaign manager on the witness stand today in the trial of the first case brought by special counsel John Durham. Durham, as you might recall, was appointed during the Trump administration by Bill Barr to look for any wrongdoing in the way the Justice Department handled the Trump-Russia probe. A former Clinton campaign attorney, Michael Sussman, is currently being accused of lying to the FBI when he shared with them unvetted information about the Trump Organization's alleged business dealings with Russia. He is accused of lying by not revealing his political motives for passing along the tip. CNN's Evan Perez is covering the trial. So, Evan, Robbie Mook, the former Clinton campaign manager, he testified today that Clinton herself signed off on the campaign sharing this unvetted and ultimately disproven information about Trump and the Alpha Bank with the New York Times reporter. What does that matter? Well, it matters, uh, Jake, for the prosecutors to show that this was part, uh, as they say, this was part of an effort by the Clinton campaign uh, to dirty up Donald Trump, to, to essentially uh, this sleazy campaign, which was intended to, to get it into the press, first of all, to get it into the press, that there were these, cert- these suspicious con- uh, connections between Donald Trump and a, a, a Kremlin-connected uh, Russian bank. Uh, secondly, according to prosecutors, is that th- they wanted the FBI to investigate this and then be able to tell the press that Donald Trump was under investigation. That was the goal of this plan. And so it was important for prosecutors to hear today from Mook that you know, she, the, the, the candidate herself, Hillary Clinton, approved of this plan to leak this to a reporter. First, it went to a Slate reporter. Uh, they were also trying to talk to a New York Times reporter at the time, Jake. Uh, what also came out in court, though, was that, according to Robbie Mook, they did not know that Sussman went to the FBI because, in the end, that became a problem. It ended up stopping some of the stories. Hmm. And today we also heard from CIA officials who also got this Trump Alpha Bank tip from Sussman. And it seems, again, there are... 
varying recollections right. of whether Sussman was upfront about the fact that he represented the Clinton campaign. Right, exactly. And this is one of the things I think that jurors are going to have to wrestle with at the end of this trial, Jake. Uh, the question of did he tell uh, the people he was meeting with in the government that he was representing uh, the Clinton campaign or did he not? And today we heard from two separate F uh, CIA officials who said uh, that, you know, they had varying recollections of what he said. And so I think what you're, what, that's become a theme of this trial, including from their star witness who has testified previously all kinds of different ways. The question for jurors is going to be, uh, uh, certainly the defense is trying to make the point, none of that matters. Because in the end, Donald Trump was actually under investigation. The world did not know it at the time. And the FBI essentially was doing what it had to do. All right, Evan Perez, thank you so much. Coming up, the deadly consequences of what's being called sextortion. A look at the growing online threats aimed now not just to teenage girls, but teenage boys as well. Stay with us. And our tech lead now, the FBI warning minors are becoming increasingly targeted in a sextortion scheme. And it's not just girls, boys too are being lured by cyber criminals into intimate online conversations and then blackmailed for money. CNN's Josh Campbell reports on how this scheme turned into a deadly outcome for one family. So Ryan was 17 years old. He was a Boy Scout, a straight-A student. Pauline Stewart's son Ryan received the message one evening in February. Hours later, a panicked Ryan took his own life. Somebody reached out to him pretending to be a girl, and they started a conversation. Their social media conversation quickly grew intimate. The cyber criminal posing as a girl sent Ryan a nude photo, then asked for one of him in return. As he sent it to them, they demanded $5,000 from him. And he told them they couldn't, so they lowered the money. Ryan, a high school senior, agreed to pay the criminals from his college savings, but their demands only increased. They threatened to post those to family members put him on the internet. Pauline said goodnight to her son at 10 p.m. Soon after, things took a devastating turn. He was still a happy, normal kid, but by two o'clock in the morning, um, that's when he took his life. Pauline says a note left behind stressed how embarrassed Ryan was for himself and the family. He really, truly thought in that time that there wasn't a way to get by if those pictures were actually posted online. His note showed he was absolutely terrified and no child should have to be that scared. Had you ever heard of this kind of scheme before? No. It's called sextortion and an increase in victims now has the FBI warning parents from coast to coast. The Bureau says there were 18,000 sextortion related complaints in 2021 with losses in excess of $13 million. The FBI says the use of child pornography by criminals to lure victims also constitutes a serious crime. To be a criminal that specifically targets children, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the, the more deeper violations of, of trust, I think, in, in society. Dan Costin leads an FBI squad working to protect America's children from this truly global threat. We're seeing primarily a lot of these are coming from, from overseas, as we've seen other financial scams. Costin says young males are the primary target and that cases are almost certainly underreported. One reason many victims don't come forward? I would say the, the embarrassment piece of this is, is probably one of the bigger hurdles that, that the victims have to overcome. 
Experts say the developing teen brain makes them especially vulnerable. It's hard for them to look past that moment and understand that in the big scheme of things, they'll be able to get through this. The message to kids, you're not alone. Experts urge parents to warn teens of the scam without shaming them. You want to make it clear to them that they can talk to you if they have done something or if they feel like they've made a mistake. Ryan's mom agrees. You need to talk to your kids. Still grieving, Pauline channels her family's pain into action, honoring her son by speaking out and hopefully saving lives. How could these people look at themselves in the mirror knowing that $150 is more important than a child's life? There's no other word but evil for me. I don't want anybody else to go through what we did. Josh Campbell, CNN, San Jose, California. Thanks to Josh Campbell for that report. Coming up next, Boeing is hoping for success in space after several disasters here on Earth. In our out-of-this-world lead, Boeing is playing catch-up in more ways than one. Right now, it's Starliner Space Capsule is catching up to the International Space Station, getting ready to dock with it in about an hour. There are no people aboard the capsule, just cargo. Boeing also is trying to play catch-up to SpaceX, which already is flying crews to and from the space station, in its own space capsules. The Starliner has been slowed by technical and development problems. Tune in this Sunday morning for State of the Union. My colleague Dana Bash will talk to the director of National Economic Council, Brian Dees. Pennsylvania Democratic gubernatorial nominee Josh Shapiro, plus Arkansas Governor uh, Asa Hutchinson. This is at 9 a.m. and noon on Sunday. And don't forget to join me Sunday night for a CNN special report, Finally Home, the Trevor Reed interview. I sit down with Trevor and his family for his first interview since being freed from captivity in Russia. I'm also going to be joined by the loved ones of other Americans detained around the world. 8 p.m. Eastern Sunday night only on CNN. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I will see you Sunday night. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.